Lord Jesus, be with us. I pray, Lord, that you would engage our minds, as we're going to see this morning, and engage our affections, our emotions. Lord, we don't want to just be cerebral followers of yours, and we also don't want to just be emotional followers. We want to blend the two. We want to have those mountaintop experiences that grab our emotions and shake us to the core, leading maybe to weeping or great expressions of joy, but at the same time be grounded in the rational ability to think through the very systematic way in which you came, you died on the cross, you shed your blood, as that song so perfectly stated, to give us access to the very presence of our Creator. Lord, those are not small words. They are, well, they're completely redirective. If we actually take them in, eat this word this morning, it will again change our lives or continue to sustain us on the journey that we're on. We ask you to do these miraculous, supernatural things amidst, in our midst here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week, we've been in Luke chapter 9 here. We looked at the transfiguration that follows this great declaration that Peter had made at Caesarea Philippi. And then he took them, the three of them, up on the mountain. I gave you my own take. I kind of think that's Mount Hermon. It might have been Mount Tabor, but probably Mount Hermon, I think, because it was so near Caesarea Philippi. And it was a glorious mountain. Again, as I alluded to last week, on the border of modern-day Syria and Lebanon to the very northern parts of Israel. A lot of action there that we see in the news over the last number of years with Assad and others. Uh, some tragedy, some triumph, but it's, you know, the mountain never quits being glorious and beautiful. And again, as I, uh, to, to recap last week, uh, it's a beautiful mountain. It's 9,000 feet and down from it flow the, the headwaters of the Jordan River that eventually flow into the Sea of Galilee, and then the outlet to the Sea of Galilee flows down into then the Dead Sea. Jesus took three of his disciples. Uh, we looked at that last week thinking about he was very intentional about discipling these three men, about training them. And one of the key things that was going to sustain them in their long journey towards, well, towards giving up their lives, towards martyrdom for two of them, and exile for the other was this momentary ability to see Jesus as he is among the myriad of angels, among the cosmos, not just a carpenter's son born in Nazareth and living for 33 and a half years. He was fully man, but he was also fully God, and they got a glimpse of his superpower. God glorified Jesus was amazing. And my premise last week was that God wants to call all of us in our discipleship process up to the mountain. It's done in worship. It's done in various ways. It's done in being in the Word. You can have those moments that really change the direction of your life or sustain you on the journey that you are already on. I've got to tell you, I need to gather with you. This is to my great benefit. I almost kicked myself yesterday. I was with somebody and they asked me, hey, what are you going to do tomorrow? And I go, well, I'm working tomorrow. And it was a stupid comment really in my, I don't know why I said it. It kind of came out and I was thinking about it as I drove home and I was sitting in my bed and so many, so many things I could have said that would have been much more glorious than I'm working tomorrow. 
what a pathetic expression of what this actually is. This has never worked for me. This is my privilege to be able to come to you every Sunday or Paul or whoever's up here teaching and to, to unpack God's word for us, to tell you to have a divine dinner, if you will. This is also part of a mountaintop experience. So this morning, I want to look at what a mountaintop experience uh, is and also what a mountaintop experience is not. And I think that's important to talk about. And then secondly, I want to talk about this whole Peter reaction to the three tabernacles uh, that he got into. I was going to try to, I was looking through this, and of course, I try to do an outline just to let you know. On Monday, I get up early, and I start doing an outline and reading through. I don't like to get two weeks ago, two weeks ahead. I don't do sermon series. Somebody asked me sometimes, you know, what are you going to be preaching on four months from now? And I'm like, I have no idea. You know, I don't know where we're going to be. So I try to be responsive to the Spirit's leading, and sometimes I'll put an outline together on Monday, and I'll send it to Pete, Randy, Kristen, Danielle, and all people who need it to produce what you see up here. And, and, and yet it starts to fill in, and I'm like, this is too much. If I try to cram all this in this week, I'll just make a mess of it. So I may still make a mess of it, but to the degree that I don't, here we go. What is a mountaintop experience? Let's talk first about what it is not what a mountaintop experience is not. Well, there are all kinds of things people have spiritual experiences. A mountaintop experience at its very core is an experience with the supernatural. It is an experience with God. It is not just a cerebral ascent to some theological premise. It is not that. It involves that, but functionally a mountaintop experience educated by the text, leads you into an encounter with God. Sometimes the hair rises up on the back of your arms, ladies. No, not ladies. But sometimes the hair rises up on the back of your arms, sometimes on the back of your neck. Sometimes, sometimes you just find yourself weeping. Sometimes you find yourself feeling cleansed and forgiven and you came in with a guilty conscience and you realize the blood applied as that second song says just releases you from a sense well you just don't know what's going on and you feel emotional you feel all the clamped right well those things are true and it's a powerful supernatural experience with God I want to have them all the time I don't always have them all the time I don't have them. I wouldn't even say I have them daily. I want. I always ask God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. I pray that virtually every day. Lord, what bread will you feed me today to sustain me, to guide me, to encourage me? To And I'm teaching often, many days of the week. I'm usually teaching. Give me something that I can give out I'm going to, you know, give me the fish and the loaves, and I'm going to break them, and I'm going to start handing them out. It's part of my task. So I ask for that. But there are, when you start talking about encounters with God, people immediately, I guarantee you, you immediately probably got a picture of something in your past, and it might have been overly emotive. It might have been something that you just say, I don't don't think that was God at all. That looked like a bunch of flesh to me. That looked like people just reacting in a way that they'd been trained. Maybe they were, you know, you fill it in, or somebody said they had an encounter with God, or somebody told them that God said, and then they say some really kind of crazy, wild 
thing that's not even in tandem with the scripture and what its message is. And so there's a knee-jerk reaction to say, well, I'm just going to keep this on the cerebral plane here. And I just don't think Jesus was allowing them to do that on the Mount of Transfiguration. When, he over, when the God the Father overshadowed them on the mountain, he wanted them. I don't think he wanted them to go, hmm, this is fascinating. I wonder what this cloud is up on the mountain. You know, I, it was really interesting. I think this is going to be uh, something I'll remember. Uh, and it's going to be part of my arsenal, my intellectual arguments when I come back down the mountain. I think he was wanting them just to fall to their knees and recognize that God was God and it should affect them very powerfully. So I don't know what your perspective on that is. I don't know what your background is with people who say, I had a God encounter, I had a mountaintop experience, God spoke to me, whatever. But if it was a negative thing for you, I beg you not just to let the catalyst, let the pendulum swing all the way to the other side and say, I'm never going to get emotional about that kind of stuff anymore. Please don't. God wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth and with the full arsenal of your emotions. I, a lot of, I have friends, and I have a dear friend in here that he talked to me. He's very impacted by uh, reading books about near-death experiences. Uh, those are, for many people, those were mountaintop moments for them. They had an encounter, and they saw a light, and they're pretty consistent when they do. Now, science is trying to explain that, what happens in the brain, and a retrospective of the life immediately just kind of flashes before your eyes as you're breathing your last. You know, people have similar experiences, and then when they're resuscitated, then they come back and talk and see similarities, and they say, these are just chemical things that are happening in the synapses in the brain, and it's just a normative thing. But then I read some things about where they float outside their body, and then they, you know, there's some kind of thing at top, and, and they describe seeing, looking down, and, and talking about there's a pair of scissors on top of that cabinet that's six feet high, and there, there was a this and that, and they go up there, and that was true. I mean, I mean, that's not just chemical reactions happening in the brain. And I've got to be honest with you, it's compelling to me, and it reinforces what I already know to be true, that the soul exists, and that it is... At one point, it will be separated from your physical, earthly body, for sure. I, I don't have any problem with it. But there are a lot of uh, near-death experiences, both on the hellish side of it, where they feel, you know, and we have even a woman that came here at Church of the Red Door. I'm not sure if they're coming back after season. But, uh, or uh, you know, and they, she talked about she was not a believer at all, and she w had an experience of what she described as going outside the presence of God. And it was like an elevator just collapsing and the screech and this high-pitched and utter darkness and all that. And there have been books written about people's experience after death that was not a great light, and it changed this woman's life forever. Those are definitely mountaintop experiences, but when they don't align... With the scripture, I, am, I will never base my theology on when someone's near-death experience. Many people do that. Someone who's uh, ne neglected God, has nothing to do with it, they see a great light, they feel this overwhelming sense of joy and love and peace and all these other kinds of things, and then the, then the story usually ends about there. Sometimes they occasionally see something that describe it on into the afterlife and some things like that. I've just got to be honest with you. I'm not ready to go down that road with anybody. I'm, I'll listen to anybody's story, but I'm not going to be swayed if anything contradicts the text. And they said, because why? Because I'm not going to be swayed by people's 
experiences. They may be very real to them, but if they're not in alignment, I have plenty of arsenal in here that says, well, 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. We are told in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, to test the spirits. What does that mean? What is the super... Now, I'm not suggesting people have not had a supernatural encounter when they have these mountaintop moments that change the direction of their lives. I'm not suggesting that, but what I am suggesting is that it can be... We know there's a supernatural realm. It confirms the supernatural realm to me, but I don't know what is light and what is darkness disguised as light. There is a... There's a need to test the spirits. That's important for us to understand. It says, 1 John 4 says, don't believe every spirit, but test them to see if they are from God. What about dreams and visions? Well, the Bible's full of dreams and visions. Daniel's dreams and visions, and there were things. Paul had a dream and it redirected them not to go to a different portion of Asia Minor, but to go up around and go to Macedonia. And they, they determined that from dreams. We see a very active part in the book of Acts. I'm very much a part of dreams and visions. I've had dreams and had visions. And by that, I mean that I can see pictures that end up you know, coming to pass sometimes 15, 20, 30 years. But again, I'm not moved necessarily by someone else's dreams or dream or vision Typically, it's for me. And so I don't have to be out there trumpeting and telling people everything that I've dreamed. Please don't tell me everything you've dreamed. I mean, I would like to hear all your dreams. No, I wouldn't. And nor would you like to hear mine. Some are just ridiculous and absurd. And I don't think every dream and every vision is from God. Sometimes it's just the pizza that I shouldn't have eaten. But the fact of the matter is dreams and visions are a part, can be a part of a very seminal moment in your life. But be cautious about everyone's dream and everyone's vision. If you look at Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, Paul's actually talking about this. And again, what does he say? Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, that's just, uh, and, so, and the worship of angels. Obviously, these people have had a spiritual encounter. Taking his stand on visions that he has seen. Okay, so these were visions and things that were actually denying some of the things that we hold precious, the divinity of Jesus, uh, his resurrection, things like that that were starting to creep into the early church here in this uh, region of Colossae. And then he says this, and this is important to see, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And this is where people retrench. They go backwards. They go, I'm not going to have anything to do with that because I've heard some really strange things coming out of people's mouth that say they had an encounter with God. They take their stand on visions they've seen. They trumpet it. They may write books. They may go on public speaking tours. They may be all over the television. My experience has been that this is the inflation of the ego very often, and that is not what a mountaintop experience is there for. Because verse 19, and this is the key, what is the key here? Well, the key is not holding fast to the head, and the head is Jesus. 
when you hold fast to Jesus, these dreams and visions can be both redirecting in your life and they can be sustaining for you on your journey in the right context, biblically aligned. Oftentimes you'll maybe have someone that you really consider a spiritual mentor. Somebody's been walking with a Jesus a long time. Sometimes they're able to kind of, you know, take some of these experiences you've had and kind of help you weed through what might be of God, test the spirits on these. Does this make sense? Please understand this is thoroughly biblical. God wants you to have mountaintop experiences, but he doesn't want you to be inflated and he doesn't want you to cling to something that's not the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. God wants growth in your life. And he will give you occasionally, maybe a dream or a vision. Joel had talked about this with the coming of the Spirit, dreaming dreams and having visions. This is, can be a mountaintop experience, but it will not inflate your ego. In fact, it will probably call you to pick up a cross if it's a real dream and a real vision. Be cautious. I'm always cautious of people who say, well, God told me to tell you. I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder why he wouldn't have just told me. Now, occasionally there's a prophetic word that may be indirect or something. And I occasionally, I have something that somebody, but usually they'll, they'll present it to me in such a humble way. As I just had a strong sense maybe that, and that they'll say something. I will gravitate to those, but I just, I'm honestly cautious of people who, because I have seen it misused so badly, so many times, people's lives have been destroyed by a, God told me to tell you this, and it wasn't of God, and it wasn't, and it really led to a direction that was very, very, um, well, it, it brought really chaos into their lives. I've experienced that. I've seen it. That's not a mountaintop experience. And I, I'm going to have you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is about the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, which is a supernatural thing. And what does Paul say? Let all things be done properly and in an orderly. Now, it's like a gathering. Obviously, this is the context of a larger gathering. In an orderly manner. A mountaintop experience is... They should lead to orderliness, not chaos. They should lead to growth, as we just saw in Paul's letter to the Colossians, not, not uh, uh, falling off the road. You know, some people, I'm not going to church because I have this horrible experience, and usually they're connected maybe with somebody that was off the charts and was claiming some kind of spiritual, um, you know, pedigree or something, and, and it really threw them off their journey. Be cautious. Be cautious. Again, God wants you to have a mountaintop experience. He wants it to be emotive, but it must cling to the head. It must not, it must not inflate the ego. Cling to Jesus. Be in line with the Scripture. And typically, well, typically they involve sacrifice. That's been my experience. They lead to a next step, which then, of course, then leads to great fruitfulness and great joy. Are you with me? All right, I need a good amen, somebody. All right, so now what are they? What are the marks of authenticity? What is really authentic about this? And again, I've alluded to a few of these, but I just a few things that were going through my head. I want to uh, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards is considered by some to be maybe one of the greatest intellects of the entire American history experiment of America 
Jonathan Edwards lived back in the early 18th century, and about in the 1740s or so, there's something occurred that theologians still look back at called the Great Awakening. It was just basically people who were drifting into secularism and materialism and well, it doesn't sound like anything we've ever experienced here in the 21st century, does it? They needed awakening. Have you ever had that where you just had somebody playing golf with or having dinner with and they're just blind and they just did just nothing and you just wish I would, you wish you could shake them and say, you know, Jesus is real. I've experienced him. This is, is you, I want you to know your creator and you just want them to wake up. And this was called the first great awakening. Jonathan Edwards was brilliant. At the age of 13, he started his education at Yale University, graduated by the age of 17, born in 1703. He only lived to be 55 years old, but before he died, his son-in-law was the president of Princeton. Wow, quite a power family, wasn't it? And he actually took his place as the president of Princeton University. It's a far stretch from maybe where we are these days where you can't even mention God on some of these campuses that were devoted to the Creator. And what a powerful intellect. Now, you would think, if anything, Jonathan Edwards would skew towards the cerebral, towards the rational, because he was every bit the rational man. But he wrote a book called the religious affections, or he talked about religious affections. And he thought it was incredibly, incredibly important. Listen to what he says. Again, we're not talking about some, you know, golf pro. So he said this, upholding Christ as the model, Edward states, truly gracious affections. Read emotions, powerful, liberating emotions. They are attended with the spirit and the temper of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? They, they're, Jesus had powerful emotions. Jesus wept. Jesus got righteously indignant with those that were selling in the temple. Jesus displayed some very powerful emotions. He was vested. He was there when they were overshadowed. He says they... They naturally begat and promote such a spirit of love and meekness and quietness and forgiveness and mercy as appeared in Christ. He's saying, look, they'll be done. Christ was always orderly. Christ was always biblically centric, but he got passionate, passionate enough to die a bloody death for you and me and transform my life. I love the fact that Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the most brilliant Americans that's ever lived, and yet he wrote tomes on the affections and their necessity in following God. You can't just treat it arm's length. Well, you know, mentally, I want you to be moved by the Spirit of God. You cannot be otherwise, and that was his position. And I'll have to be honest with you, it's mine as, it's mine as well. So what do we see in authenticity? Well, again, as I alluded to, we always see humility. If you've had a mountaintop experience, it should lead to more humility, more the temper of Jesus Christ, to quote, again, Jonathan Edwards. It should be service-directed. It leads you to something. You know, I was thinking about, I'm going to quote in a second, Charles Colson, you know, the infamous Watergate scandal that broke out. And he was kind of at the epicenter of that. And he went to prison. And there he found Jesus. And the angel tree that we're involved in, interestingly enough, is an offshoot of what he did in 
prison ministry. Many of you have been uh, involved in prison ministry right here in our valley and, and slightly beyond, Calipatria and others. And so I will just tell you that it typically, mountaintop experiences lead not to grandeur and pomposity. It leads to one thing even more powerful, infinitely more powerful than that, just humility. It's always Jesus glorifying. It's never self-promoting. And especially when directives are involved. Sometimes these directives can be tightly held in your mind for years before they ever manifest to anybody else. This was my experience. I had a mountaintop experience, and it took tragedy in my life, but I had a mountaintop experience. It was one morning in prayer, and it changed, utterly changed the direction of my life. I alluded to that last week, and I told essentially no one except for my wife, and we watched God unpack this for years. Sometimes God will give you a vision about the future, and it will line up with all of this humility and service directed and Jesus glorifying, and it will do all those things, and it will utterly change the direction of your life and your destiny. But sometimes these must be held for years, as we see in people like Joseph and others that I alluded to last week. Some of these were immediately noticed, but most of them, they were visions that God gave in a mountaintop experience that really paved the future, but there was so much preparation, they really didn't manifest themselves in any significant public way until years later. God wants you to have those redirected, redirective mountaintop experiences. It's important to see. And as I alluded to, they're always consistent with the Word. Those are what I believe mountaintop experiences should be and what we have to be cautious about them not becoming something that, again, inflates the ego, etc. Okay, so now next, Luke chapter 9, verse 33 and 36. I do want to touch on this before we close this morning. The three tabernacles, right? Uh, such a, it's, a, it's quite... It, it, it's comic relief in some ways. It's sad in others, but it so perfectly describes, well, I'd love to say there was none of this in me, but I've seen in my own life. I do this all the time. I have to be so cautious. And this is very, very instructive for me. And I hope it is for you this morning. So Luke chapter 9, verse 33. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus... Master, it is good for us to be here. I read this last week, but let me reread it. Let us make three tabernacles for you. In fact, in Matthew's account, it says, I will, I will build you three tabernacles. I will. Exactly the very thing some of you have heard me teach on this, exactly what we see both in Isaiah and Ezekiel, but we see this picture of this adversary, this fallen angel called Lucifer that was, he, he often said, I will, I will. He's like, okay, this is what my will says. And this is exactly where Peter was. <clears throat> we'll do one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. There's three of you, so let me build, you know, three of these. What were, probably were just these little huts that they used. Not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Overshadowed. Episkiadzo. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. I'm going to stop for just a second. I'm just going to pause here for a second. I want you to 
Just try to embrace that for a second. What is the Father? I think the Father, I, I really believe that the Father is speaking to us as a church this morning and you as an individual. Bear with me. This is not just for theatric effect here. Stop for a second, pause, and listen to your Father tell you, listen to Him. Listen to my son. Wow. It kind of changes things, you know, sometimes. You're just, we just, we're just out running around doing things for God and all that. Listen to me, God. Jesus would say, just listen to me. I've got, I've got instructions for you today. What are your plans? What, are, what maybe are plans that I have for you? Just, just listen. Please just listen. Listen to my son. He's the chosen one. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days about the things which they had seen. Again, kind of supporting that picture that this, this vision really wouldn't be unpacked. This mountaintop experience was something for them. It was, it was part of their discipleship. And as I alluded to last week, it was significant for them, wasn't it? Why? Because, uh, well, what they, they needed this. Peter, James, and John, they needed this moment because they would really become pillars, pillars of the church. They were Jesus' inside core. So what are the three lessons in closing of the tabernacle? I would say simply this. Number one, this is what I said. Slow down, big fella. A lot of people come to Christ and they say, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. I'm going to build this tabernacle and this tabernacle and this tabernacle. And they just really don't. And I love the enthusiasm, by the way. I mean, I just love it when new believers come and they just they have plans and they're just going to do all these kinds of things and, and they just run out. And oftentimes you just kind of have to, you know, let them go and let them run their course a little bit and they'll, they'll find that they're really not prepared for it yet or they'll find it's rare that you'll find, well, they just need some more discipleship and it's really not the Lord speaking, it's just them. And it's a, it's a, it's a gracious act because you're like, he saved me, and I had a powerful emotional mountaintop moment. I've got a new spirit within me. Let's go. And God's saying, slow down, big fellow. Slow down, big fellow. One of the most significant steps in your journey towards maturity is the moment you do recognize Jesus as glorified Jesus. Not Jesus as teacher, not Jesus as, you know, all the other things that the world thinks of Jesus as. But when you see him as he truly is, glorified, transfigured, superhero that surpasses all the Marvel comic heroes, when you see him highly exalted and lifted up, you will submit yourself, but you need to learn to listen to him. And that is a long and arduous process. I still struggle with it. I've got all kinds of plans for Jesus and his kingdom. And then he tells me to go and do this. And I can't see the benefit of it. I don't understand how. I, I have my own plans and I think about my retirement. And one day I'm going to have a little little hut like that beside a Colorado Rocky Mountain stream. I tell Laura about it every day. I don't know if that's the Lord's plan for me. Maybe it's not. Lord Jesus, I just pray that that would be the plan that you have for my life. Anyway, but I'll listen to him. And if he, if he never guides me in that way, okay. You know, I, I hire a lot of people. I'm involved in hiring a lot of people. As being the president and CEO of Lynx Players International, with our region directors and area directors and LPI reps and our fellowship leaders all over the country, 
I'm involved in having to manage people, or the privilege of managing people, but always the challenge of managing people. And then here at Church of the Red Door from, you know, across the spectrum, I mean, obviously the guys do a great job with it, but ultimately it kind of comes back. And I'm, I, I found myself even this last week sitting with someone and his wife and talking about their future. And I'm always asking the question, I'm, you know what I'm looking for? Where was your mountaintop experience where you feel called to be called to something like this? Because this, this is not an easy road to go down. This is not just a job. It's a calling. You know, we're right in the middle of something they call what? The great resignation. I heard, uh, I read an article yesterday, uh, 3% of the labor force, 4 million people in just in the last few months have walked off the job. <laughs> Everybody's want to retire early, and they're going to do all this. And they, the, the, the COVID gave them a realization. I don't know what they're going to do to pay the bills, but COVID gave them a, you know, just a realization that it's not about. And I just wonder what it would be like to go through life just randomly. If I wanted to resign from this church, I couldn't unless I heard Jesus said, and if Jesus said, you know, if it, listen to him. I just don't know. People just go so randomly through life, and even Christians, I beg you not to do that. Listen to him. Well, I, Lord, I want to do this on my terms, not yours. We would never say that, but that's how effectively that's how we live. It's what I'm going to do with my money. This is what I'm going to do with my time. This is what I'm going to do with my, where I'm going to live and what I'm going to do. I just have given that up. And I think Jesus would call all of us to give that up. Now, you may stay right where you, where you are. You may continue. It may look very similar, but it could be redirected in ways that are powerful. Peter was ready to act. But what we do now understand is that we are such mixed bags. We really need to listen to the voice of the Lord about our lives. Number two. Jesus was not on par with all the other created beings, Moses and Elijah. I'm going to build three tabernacles for all of you. And this, this unpacks a whole new thing. Peter's thinking was skewed, right? It was a one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And as I alluded to last week, Moses was a representative type of the law and Elijah was a representative type of the prophets. They were both being, well, they were both. There was a succession plan. Jesus was going to be prophet, priest, and king, and everything. And in fact, when we see the glory, the, the, they were overshadowed when the cloud departed, it was what? Jesus alone. See, Peter made the mistake of Jesus plus and all these other guys, and it was kind of this equal sense of. And some of you may have been powerfully persuaded by what we call pluralism or something where Jesus is one among many spiritual leaders and very could be very important. He's a very important picture, prophet in Islam, but he's not ultimate. There was no there was no mincing words here. Jesus was ultimate. When the cloud left, he was standing alone. Peter made that mistake. And then lastly, and this is where we're going to go next week. Jesus, he doesn't want us to stay on the mountain. We are called to come off the mountain. In fact, we'll look at the very next verse next week. And then they came down off the mountain. I can tell you right now, I've had those mountaintop experiences, and I have them periodically, where, you know, I just get caught up in the very, and I, I'm not charismatic, non-charismatic terms, forget all that. I'm going to use this language and don't let it offend you, but sometimes, somehow I just feel, 
I feel overshadowed. Can I use that term? I know there's not literally a cloud in my office, but sometimes I just feel overshadowed. I, I sense the glory of God. I remember early on when I had really one of my first deeply, passionately, uh, it was after just trauma in my life, which really led me to a deeper walk with Christ some 30 years ago. I was a golf pro at the Vintage Club, and I was at home, and I had gone through some real tragedy. And I had what I would just say is a mountaintop experience, and it was emotional. And I wept, and I, and it was, I was alone in my home. And I, and I, and I, forgive me, I was like David. I ran around in my underwear, I ran around in my house, and I was raising my hands, and I had worship blaring outside, you know, all over the house. And it was just, I had gone, it was, it was very, very powerful. And much of the person that you see today is a byproduct of that. It wasn't just something that was just a cerebral thing. And it, this is the moment it tilted and it went way to the other side. It was very, very emotional. And I've had, I don't have a lot of those, but I have them enough to know those overshadowing moments you want. Can I just tell you, you want those? You need those. You need me on that wall, Jack Nicholson would say. You need them. I'm just telling you, you need those moments. But then he doesn't want you to stay there. Have them, glory in them. Come on Sunday, worship, hear the word, be with some friends. Then you've got to come back down the mountain. Go right back into a world of chaos and hatred and bigotry and, and where you're marginalized and misunderstood and you want there to be another great awakening. I'm going to close by simply reading this kind of summing this up, I thought it was just so beautiful. It's Charles Colson writing the foreword to a book on Jonathan Edwards' book. <clears throat> He's talking again about the emotion part, the emotive part of these mountaintop experience. experiences. Charles Colson writes, these, with these insights, Edwards struggled against the doctrinaire, rigid theorist of religion on the one hand and against the unbalanced emotional enthusiasts on the other hand, he rejected much of the hysteria and the bizarre emotions and the ephemeral enthusiasm associated with the revivalist meetings of his day. And by the way, you know what's really fascinating? Jonathan Edwards also was in the middle of a pandemic in the early 1700s called the smallpox. And the, some in the church were preaching against being vaccinated. And some were saying, you know, if you took it, you were getting the mark of the beast. Did you know this happens? This happens, tends to happen over and over. And he... He ended up being vaccinated and kind of took a stand for that. And I'm just telling you, it's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, this is just human nature. It's just human nature. <clears throat> Religious affections might well have been written for our culture, Colson writes. We've simply substituted the excesses of extreme emotionalism of Edwards' day. There were some wild expressions during the Great Awakening. People barking like dogs and running around and doing it. And he, he rejected much of that. Because why? It wasn't orderly. It wasn't really connected to the head. Though you can switch on some Christian TV channels and see ample dem demonstrations of that as well. With our more subtle manifestations of cultural Christianity, many in today's pews use the Christian jargon, participate in all the right prayer breakfasts, small groups, Christian associations, 
but their hearts are just as hardened and unrepentant as those to whom Christ will one day say, Depart, I never knew you. Terrifying language Colson uses here. Edwards stressed that we can never cultivate true religious affections without a deepened sense of sin. Oh, there he goes again talking about our sin. Can we just get come in here one time, Jeff, and have one time where you lift us up and leave us there without talking about sin? No. Because it leads you to the mountaintop. It makes the mountaintop sweeter when you recognize who you truly are. You're overwhelmed by his glory because you have left your perceived glory behind. It's the very heart of the Christian conversion to, conversion to confront one's own sin and so desperately desire deliverance from it. And once we've seen our sin, we can only live in gratitude for God's amazing grace. And he talks a little bit about himself. I know this most intimately in the throes of Watergate. I went to talk to my friend Tom Phillips and his explanation of having accepted Christ baffled me. What? I was tired and empty and sick of scandal and accusations, but not once did I really see myself as having sinned. Not once. Politics was a dirty business, and I was good at it. And what I had done, I rationalized, was no different from the usual political maneuverings. What's more, right and wrong were relative, and my motives were for the good of the country, or so I believed. But that night, when I left Tom's house, sat alone in my car. Catch this. My own sin, not just dirty politics, but the hatred and pride and evil so deep within me was thrust before my eyes forcefully and painfully. For for the first time in my life, I felt unclean. And worst of all, I couldn't escape it. In those moments of clarity, I found myself driven irresistibly into the arms of a living God. Since that night, catch this, I've grown increasingly aware of my own sinful nature and is good in me. I, I know beyond all doubt comes only through the righteousness of Jesus Edwards wrote of this same realization 20 years after his own conversion. Listen to what Edwards wrote, and I'm almost finished. I have affecting views of my own sinfulness and vileness very frequently to such a degree as to hold me in a kind of loud weeping. Jonathan Edwards, intellect extraordinaire, catalyst, one of the primary catalysts, of course, the Holy Spirit, to the first great awakening and he's so in despair about his own sin? Really? I've had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than I ever had before my conversion. It's affecting to think how ignorant I was when a young Christian at the bottomless, infinite depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. And then Colson finally closes and says this, the result of that heightened awareness of sin, Edward says, is that the heart will grow in tenderness. Mountaintop moments, true, orderly, humble, mountaintop experiences lead to tenderness. And out of that tenderness flows a profound gratitude to God for His mercy, a thankfulness that can only be expressed through service to 
him. See, this was a powerful moment, folks, this transfiguration. It changed the destiny of not only their lives, but by extension, our lives. Thank God for Peter, James, and John. Thank you for them, Lord. They've, they've given us guidance and directions through the scripture that you inspired through the Holy Spirit through their lives. And it now flows down through the centuries. And we pick up that torch. We have our mountaintop experience. And then we go back into culture as light.